Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for this episode. Um, look, this is a very, as, and I feel like I've been saying this for three months, this is such an unusual time to be hosting a college football podcast. And we know that some listeners would probably prefer if every single week Bruce and I got on here and just analyzed depth charts and, and just talked strictly football, but obviously that's just not the reality we're living in right now. The biggest stories in college sports right now pretty much all involve real-life headlines, and certainly the most notable one this week uh, was the situation at Oklahoma State and Mike Gundy wearing a T-shirt that uh, his players clearly took exception to because of racist associations with OAN, the network that he had on that T-shirt, and Chuba Hubbard, uh, Oklahoma State's star running back, a Heisman candidate, goes on Twitter and, and shocks everybody by saying that this is unacceptable, and he doesn't. Um, he basically was threatening to boycott. Um, and we've seen other situations like this. I mean, this is just um, as the Black Lives Matter movement has just taken off nationally. Uh, we're seeing college football players all around the country speaking out on things that we wouldn't necessarily have expected before all this. So we think it's important to, to delve into some of the ones that are in the news right now. And to do that, we're bringing on our colleague David Ubbin. Uh, David has uh, covered uh, the Big 12 for a long time in his career. He covered Tennessee for us now. Uh, and we thought it was very important to have a black writer on for this discussion. As you'll see during the interview, David has a perspective that uh, much needed that I don't think Bruce and I would have um, necessarily reached on our own. So um, he's also got a very special podcast coming out on this topic very soon that he's going to talk about. So let's get to David. We're pleased right now to be joined by our colleague, David Ubbin. Uh, David covers Tennessee for us now, uh, but he spent much of his career in Big 12 country. And David, it just seems like a lot of the, um, the, the biggest stories right now involving player empowerment at these schools and, and um, just, just things we never would have guessed we would see even a month ago much le- or however longer before that of athletes really standing up and calling for changes either within their program or at their schools are happening at those big 12 schools. So, I mean, at first and obviously I think we need to start with Oklahoma state. You've covered Mike Gundy. Um, we, we've all spent time with him. I, I can't say I've spent extensive time with him. What was your re- initial reaction when you, first of all, when you saw the, the t-shirt and then when, when Chuba Hubbard sent his tweet, yeah, uh, I mean, it's complicated because it is about the T-shirt, but it's also not about the T-shirt. <laughs> I think I think a lot of people sort of want to deduce it down to, you know, can a guy just wear a shirt 
that you know advertises a network that espouses insane conspiracy theories and things that uh, uh, sort of perpetuate a lot of the uh, systemic racism in the country without people getting mad. I, I think there's a lot of that sort of attitude. Um, yeah, look, it's it's uh, the ultimately can he wear whatever shirt he wants to? Yes, but if you are tasked with putting you know helping student athletes and uh you know the majority of those guys are black and and they have a different life experience than you um and you're not really taking care to think about or put at the front of your mind what they care about and how the things that you do affect them there's going to be blowback there just is and i think you know in the wake of um you know all this, and, and Mike Gundy talking about. It. I think he's admitted to some uh, blind spots in his own vision, but I guess I would say that you know he's been recruiting black athletes for thirty years. If you're blind to some of these things, or you don't know how your players are going to react to you wearing an, an OAN shirt, well, I, I think you've been a, done a poor job of listening for the last thirty years. And then you sort of talk about you know some of the Alfred Williams allegations that he is talked about this week that he's been talking about it sounds like for decades i personally had not heard that before uh, it was obviously before my day but you know this is not something that he has uh, been quiet about but as these things have have uh, as mike Gundy's name's been in the headlines and 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 dealing with all that obviously this this came back up and um you know that's a separate issue entirely and and i think it it sort of is, is going to be something that he may be dealing with uh, far beyond this week David, one of the things that that I thought about a little bit as this, and um, you know, I thought back to you know when you said, "Is it about the T-shirt?" It is, and it isn't. I think one of the things in the context is, and I don't remember. It may have been two months ago, it may have been a month ago, when Mike Gundy had given a Zoom call uh, press conference. He he went and talked about the OANN network, or and. Uh, yeah, and so I think in the context of that I was curious, just because I, I'm not saying I don't I don't know that this has happened. Maybe it has. Where I can remember a head football coach just going on kind of a a soapbox or whatever, talking about a, a news network at any point, whether it was whether it was Fox News, ABC News, CNN, MSNBC, whatever. And so I think that in, in the context of that, like, I'd be curious if he had wore the shirt without maybe that beforehand, would the players have reacted differently? I don't know. One of the things I was going to ask you, just as a reporter, and obviously, as, as Stu said, I mean, we've, we've all covered Mike Gundy. I don't think, I, I don't feel like I know him particularly well. I feel like there's a lot of other coaches I feel like I know better than him. But when uh, Chuba Hubbard his tweets came out one of the questions that i had had was what was the change that he and and players there are looking for in regard to this and that held true after he had the the um the video that was posted where he and gundy both i think it was like 45 seconds or less than a minute where they both commented and it it seemed like there was i don't want to say there was people took it as like there was closure but things are a little bit um more yeah and then there was another uh there was another interview that mike gundy had just done and maybe i don't know if it was the next morning or the next day uh and then again last night bo mattingly who is 
I believe is the producer on this, correct me if I'm wrong, on the, on this behind the scenes uh, show that ESPN Plus is doing, where it seemed like it was a little more, uh, I don't say unscripted, but it was just, it seemed a little, a little, a little uh, more direct maybe. Um, but my question is when, when, Mike, uh, when, when Chuba Hubbard, I guess, had done uh, the first take show, they had asked him specifically, like, what are the changes you're hoping for? And I don't know if he got into it. As a reporter and as somebody who's following this story, you know, I think nothing, ha- you know, we're seeing stuff play out in real time. And I think we're looking for, for answers probably faster than maybe some of these things can get sorted out. What do you think are the questions we in the media should be asking as these things are unfolding the way they are in real time, sometimes often on social media and often people are diving in maybe before players are, and people involved know how to handle them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the biggest thing is sort of just asking coaches, you know, where do you stand on these things and what are you doing to that end? Um, it's, uh, I think when you look around at college football, um, I, I think you see three, I, I, in my view of the last few months, I think you see the coaches jumping in sort of three buckets when you talk about statements, actions, interviews, all those things. You have the first bucket, which is guys who I, I wouldn't say necessarily oppose a lot of these things, but they disagree with a lot of the um, ideas. And when you talk about, oh, does systemic racism exist? Oh, uh, are black people uh, disproportionately affected by policing, the criminal justice system, education, health care? I mean, we can talk about this for hours. I think there's people that, that would disagree with some of those things. There's people that are going to be in the middle that are going to say, well, what can I say that will make me feel that's not going to cost me in recruiting, that's going to make me look good but not upset people that do disagree with a lot of the things that, that we're talking about here? And then you have the coaches that are about it that are like, this is this is this stuff is wrong. Um, this stuff has affected me. I've seen how this stuff has affected my players, and I'm going to be in action and and helping to to end these and be sort of um, an advocate for these things. And I think that that that's when you're playing in college football. I think it's easy to sort of look past a lot of these things. But the irony in all this is sort of how closely linked the coronavirus situation is with this because players are outside of the bubble of college football. They see what's going on. They see how their coaches are reacting and talking about these things. Um, and they're not sort of um, locked into the head down, you know, uh, go back to work sort of idea. And I think players are just like any of us. They can see which which bucket their coaches kind of fall into. And I think when you see your coach wearing an OAN shirt – it is, like I said, it's, it, it is about a shirt, but also it says to players, our coach is in that first bucket. He doesn't care or he is against a lot of the things that have affected uh, us, our teammates, uh, uh, our families, all of these things. And I think that that's where the frustration comes from. And, and I think, too, I, I, I didn't particularly appreciate some of the disingenuousness of people like, oh, would he have gotten mad if he was wearing a CNN shirt? It's like, listen... OAN is 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 not an organization that is interested in doing any serious journalism. It's sort of about pledging fealty to the current administration and peddling a lot of conspiracy theories and sort of wrong-headed stuff. And so if you're going to be doing those things and and sort of promoting these things that are counter to what your players care about and what 
the things that have caused your players and their families pain over the course of their lives, I, I, you know, again, you either don't care uh, or you're just sort of oblivious. And if you're a, the most highly paid uh, guy in the entire university anywhere, you don't get to plead either of those two things. Both of those are inexcusable. So to circle back around to your question, I think it's just getting coaches to really talk about this and be like, how, you know, where, where do you stand on some of this? And, and don't let them sort of kind of straddle the fence of, of um, um, you know, of, of trying to sort of say enough where people back like you, you kind of have to say are you going to be you know these things are issues and you either care about them or you don't um and and you can say you care about them but if you're not willing to do anything then it's like what, what are we even talking about here david you had a, a tweet so things it's, it's just a fascinating time right now where um things that in things you know statues are coming down things that had been just part of a campus or part of society for a hundred years or more, you know, everybody is becoming aware of now. And so we're recording this on Thursday, uh, Florida announced it's discontinuing the use of the gator bait chant. I'll be honest. I had no idea that there were, um, uh, racist connotations to that chant, much like I had no idea about the origins of the eyes of Texas as of last week, um, which the Texas players are, are asking them to change. You, you tweeted to this uh, Gatorbait news, like all the things that some are learning are suddenly racist, none of this is new. People are just paying attention and caring now. What's it been like to watch this over the last few weeks? I mean, th- these are things that, like you said, like black people knew these things were racist. The rest of us weren't necessarily paying attention. And all of a sudden, there's this groundswell of support to um, finally do something about it. I-, I look at it like this. It's, it's a complicated issue. Um, so, one... Do black people want to walk around a campus or other things where there is our statues, you know, uh, celebrating some of the Confederate generals that were willing to fight to keep them enslaved? No, they don't. But we're in 2020 right now. Is, is that the chief thing that most black people are, are really concerned about? We got to get Aunt Jemima off of there. We got to get the Confederate statues down. We got to get Gator Bait taken off. We got to stop seeing Eyes of Texas, all these things. No, that's not the chief thing. But what that is, is that is an opportunity for people in power who have the ability to change small things to say, we hear you, we're taking these things seriously, we can change these things overnight. When you talk about the big issues, you talk about access to education, the wage gap, healthcare, uh, gaps in sentencing, um, you know, disproportionate arrests, disproportionate arrests regarding, uh, you know, drug uh, offenses, all of those things, all of the things you can point to systematic inequality that's baked into the society of America. Those things take forever to change. They're difficult to change. There's a lot of people who don't want them to change or don't believe that they exist. Those things are really, really hard. All this other stuff that is, I wouldn't say silly, it's much easier. And I take it as a chance for a, a, a person in power or a group in power to sort of give a gesture of goodwill and say, you know what, this probably shouldn't be here and we're going to get rid of this and let's try to be about making actual change moving forward that's going to affect black people moving forward. That's how I see it. Some people might disagree. Some people you know, might not realize that the entirety of black uh, existence is not a monolith. People disagree on these things, but that's how I see it. And I think that is, is encouraging 
um, because it says that people, for the first time in a long time, are paying attention um, and care about things that cause, you know, black people pain and things that black people have complained about. Um, there shouldn't be any anywhere in America that celebrates Nathan Bedford Forrest. And I think if you look up the history of these statues, a lot of them were installed uh, as a response to, during, after the civil rights and the Jim Crow era. It's it's essentially flipping the bird to the black existence. <laughs> these things didn't, uh, most of these, these statues didn't go up in the 1860s when these people were in power. And I think the idea that you're erasing history is is foolhardy as well it's you're not celebrating a history that fought to oppress americans and so yeah when you're talking about some of these things that we're talking about the gator bait and all these things like i said this isn't the chief thing but it says to me that the people in power are actually caring and i think again time will reveal who actually cares who is actually willing to do the grunt work and the policy work to help make some of these changes time will reveal that but you can't do that in a month But you can say, you know what, we're not going to do these things anymore. And so for me, I appreciate that. And if people are fighting and saying, no, 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 we need these statues. No, 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 we need all these things. Is that really worth fighting for? Really? Because if it is, all right. But I I lose a little bit of respect for people who are, you know, going to spend their time and energy fighting for these things that, that aren't worth fighting for. David, when you mentioned the coaches in certain buckets, I I know that in you don't want to slight anybody because you're saying, you know, maybe you missed this person marched at a protest or led players to, to this place or that place. But from your perspective, uh, I remember seeing Mark Stoops seem like he really, really, uh, not only wanted to back his players, but make it, make a statement like that. It looked like just from reading some stuff that you had done and also some of the stuff on social media that Jeremy Pruitt also seemed like he stepped up in a in that way. How much um, of a leadership role do you think that can play in the state of Tennessee, where we know how big of a deal Tennessee football is? Um, when the coach does that, and what are the things? Because I know you had just had a Zoom call with him earlier today. Um, not just that he, to go to a march, but also to once this thing you know, like everything kind of, I don't want to say it has a shelf life of when it has people's attention, but you know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So from, from what you've seen, what is Jeremy Pruitt and Tennessee football? Like, how do they keep, keep, uh, you know, keep the momentum up for some of the change that it seems like they want to help bring about? Well, you know, they, they mentioned today, um, you know, Jerry Pruitt, and, and he's talked to the players. They put together a culture committee, is what they're sort of calling it. T. Martin, um, obviously a, a black coach at Tennessee, is the assistant head coach and passing game coordinator and receivers coach. He's heading that up with some players and staffers um, to sort of say, okay, we're going to talk about these things and figure out what we want to do as players and then communicate to the community. What are the things that are needed? How can we influence change in in our immediate area? And so they've talked about a lot of things. You know, as of Thursday, they've started getting all their players registered to vote. You're seeing a groundswell of um, a lot of, uh, at least from the NCAA, I think they made an official recommendation that that on election day um, this year that all football activity ceases to give players an opportunity to vote. Um, Just logistically, it's a problem. Um, getting that much time 
to be able to go and 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 do that uh, if you're uh, got demands of class and all those things on top of that. And then of course they they mentioned that one of the things that they had talked about was uh, wearing black jerseys, which Tennessee fans have been wanting to see for a long time um, and have been kind of rumored this fall or this uh, this summer. You know, I think a couple of coaches have been flirting with it on Twitter. Um, but having black jerseys, wearing them against Kentucky, and then auctioning them off and and donating the money to um, Black Lives Matter and, and doing those sorts of things. And so I think ultimately, you know, as far as Jeremy Pruitt's posture through all this, there's nothing wrong with people admitting, oh, I didn't know these things. I didn't see these things. I think everybody wants to sort of never admit they had blind spots. And from the start of this, you know, Jerry Pruitt talked to us. I, I did an interview with him, um, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, kind of talking about how this had affected his program. And he said, you know, he had not heard of a lot of the things that had happened, you know, just in the last decade that have affected his players. There are things that his players think about. And he said, you know, uh, he, he'd come across the video of Ahmaud Arbery, you know, being shot um, by two guys, uh, drove up on him in a truck and, you know, the Breonna Taylor situation with the, the no-knock warrant, and then, of course, um, the George Floyd video, and, and he said, you know, these are just three that I've seen, and I don't know, and I think he is like a lot of other white people in America that are sort of asking themselves the question um, in these last couple weeks, month, what else don't I know? And I think that people are finding out the answer to that question is a whole lot, and I think that's, uh, this is the first time that, you know, in my life that I've seen people you know, really pay attention and and learn and try to change some of the things that have affected um, black people for a long time. And I think his players are, are going to appreciate that. And I think based on what we've seen now, I mean, obviously you have to keep that going, but based on what we've seen now, I don't know how you can't put Jeremy Pruitt pretty firmly in that, in that third bucket of, he knows he doesn't know everything, but he wants to help be part of the change. And and uh, and what does that look like? I think there's a lot of fair debate about how you can best influence that. That's fine, um, but if you're going to sort of stand in the way, uh, I think that's that's going to be a problem. If you're trying to coach, you know, 95 uh, college football players, the majority of whom at most schools are going to be black uh, young black males. I, I think we should maybe wrap with this which is just kind of looking ahead a little bit of where this this whole movement might be headed you know we've heard the word leverage a lot recently that suddenly the players are realizing they have leverage and i think a perfect example of that is at texas where uh tom herman i think falls in that bucket we're talking about he had some pretty i thought on on spot comments pretty early on about why it was important to support uh players during this time He's, he, you know, basically said, if you're going to you know, sit in the stands and root for these guys on Saturdays, you better have their back, you know, the rest of the week. Um, and then he marched with them to the state capitol. And then I, I don't remember what the period of time was in between, but Texas players ended up doing one of the more, I think, um, outspoken things in all this. They put together a list of, of changes they want to see made in the athletic department around the campus, the most notable being wanting them to either – um, get rid of the Eyes of Texas fight song or at least not require the players to um, to sing it. And so then there was a meeting this week with the AD and with the interim school president. And I don't know how it went, but it did end with at least one Texas player tweeting that he no longer felt comfortable representing Texas. Uh, so where does this go from here? I mean, players, now that they've seen the effect they can have, do we think this will continue, that this will now become the standard part 
of, of the college football coach player dynamic or is there concern that it fades um, once the season starts and we get back to at least something close to quote unquote normal college football? Well, is it always going to be this intense? I would say probably not. But the flip side of that is our uh, players realizing, you know, going back to Mike Gundy, I mean, he sort of said the quiet part out loud when he says, we got to get these guys back so we can get the money going through the economy and all those sorts of things that, you know, put him under fire initially back in, I guess that was way back in April when he was talking about bringing guys back on May 1st. And players are realizing, hey, if we don't play the entire structure of higher education and in many places our local economy crumbles and that means you have a lot of power but you have to have a a united front if you're going to um, exercise some of that power and that gets complicated um, naturally Um, but I think you know name image likeness is coming Um, we'll see kind of what players can advocate for but there's going to have to be a united front to be able to to flex on some of those things and and I I think you know we saw this a little bit at Missouri in 2015 um, where you you know the once the football team got involved in the campus protests uh, the president was gone pretty quick because they were talking about not playing a game and that's a lot of money players have a lot of power Um, and I think that's you know them waking up to that, I think you have, you know, obviously coronavirus has helped expose a lot of that. Them waking up to that is a, a relatively new uh, development. I think for a lot of players seeing that, um, but how you wield it, I think, is is the the question moving forward. And I, I don't think we have a good answer to that yet. Well, David, we appreciate your time and your perspective on this, and want to give you a chance to explain. Also, uh, you're going to take the lead on a podcast and a roundtable that you guys are taping tomorrow, right, as part of The Athletic. And can you fill us in a little bit more on, on how that came about? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I appreciate The Athletic sort of giving us a platform to be able to talk about these things. I, I heard from a lot of people um, we wrote about sort of our own experiences with racism and like what does racism and the experience of being black in America in 2020, what does that actually look like? And I think it's amazing to me because we wrote those things and I heard from a lot of people, oh, you know, this is powerful. Oh, this is, I can't, you know, I can't believe this stuff is still happening. But as when we were talking about it as just like our black staffers, it's like, I'm kind of amazed because like this is just like what life looks like. You just experience these things and I'm amazed that the people honestly didn't know that these things still happened and, and sort of what racism in 2020 actually looks like. And so, you know, I appreciate the athletic giving us that platform and, and being able to talk about this moment in college sports. So, uh, yeah, myself, um, CJ Holmes, who covers Arizona for us, Colton Pouncey, um, and Tashawn Reed, who actually covered those Mizzou protests back in 2015. Uh, Tashawn has left our college team. He covers the Las Vegas Raiders now. He's out west. And then Ryan Clark, uh, who covers the Avalanche for us, used to cover Florida State. Um, all of us will be uh, uh, kind of talking about this moment in sports and, and what this sort of looks like and, and answering some of those questions about you know that. And, and CJ, uh, you know, he played at Auburn. He's, he's been an athlete himself, and, uh, and his experience is uh, interesting. And so we're looking forward to, to doing that and being able to talk about that and be able to put that on, on the athletics platform um, for people that, again, are trying to take a, a posture of understanding and, and be able to um, 
see things that they maybe didn't see before and and what this looks like and how this moment looks from a perspective other than their own. So I appreciate anybody who wants to take some time to listen. I can't wait for that. David, thanks so much for for coming on. This is a great conversation. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right. Thanks, David. Back to the podcast in a minute, but first, a word from our newest partner, Hydrant. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation, but not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You could save even more with a monthly subscription. So get 25% off your first order by going to drinkhydrant.com audible. That's drinkhydrant.com audible for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com audible. Now. Back to the podcast. All right, Bruce, as always, time for the mailbag. You can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Here's a fun little exercise from one of our regular contributors, Johnny Shea. Um, Hey, guys, I was listening to Andy Staples' podcast in which he talked about Michigan, and that got me thinking about the quote-unquote warm seat. The warm seat is best personified by Jim Harbaugh. What would keep him from going to the hot seat? obviously that would be beating Ohio State. So my question for you is to name a coach on the hot seat or warm seat that would keep his situation from being worse, fired, or moved to the hot seat by beating his arch rival and the overall season record. So here are his examples. Jim Harbaugh, 2020. If he goes 8-4 and four but beats Ohio State, would that save him from going to the hot seat? Example or examples? Sorry. Uh, there's three examples. Harbaugh... Chip Kelly, if he beats, you know, he didn't put a specific record in here, but if he has, I guess, a mediocre record, but he beats USC or he beats Oregon. And Gus Malzahn, what, you know, mediocre record, but he beats Alabama and so forth. I mean, I would just say I don't think Harbaugh is going to be going to the hot seat anytime soon unless they just completely crumble. I don't think there's any, I know there's people frustrated, but I don't think there's any real sentiment to fire the guy. Um, but to his example, if he goes eight and four, but he beats Ohio State, I mean, beating Ohio State is the single thing that his tenure is not being able to beat Ohio State is the single thing his tenure has been defined by. So what it would do is probably quiet anybody who, and I think they're in the minority, but anybody who does think he should be on the hot seat. Yeah, I think there's something that has to be considered here in the interest of this is with everything that's gone on in COVID, the financial challenges that a lot, if not all universities are going to have is a lot of universities are not going to have the money to buy out co- coaches who may have extensive contracts. So it's not going to be in line with a typical year. Now, as far as Jim Harbaugh, I don't, I don't think he's really on the hot seat. The question I've had for a lot of people is who do you think is going to go in there that you're going to hire? Who's going to have credentials and give you that much more confidence that he can overtake Ohio state. I just don't think there's an answer there unless you think you're going to hire Urban Meyer to do it. Chip Kelly's been there two years. He's actually beaten USC. I don't think 
that again, this is a prime school that doesn't have a lot of money. I don't see them buying out a coach who's been successful somewhere else after three years. Uh, Gus Miles on and uh, Gus Miles on's beaten Alabama. I just think that right now they're on the roller coaster ride, and you know they they made their deal a couple of years ago. And he didn't go to Arkansas. I just think this marriage is going to be this way for a little while. So I'm not sure, to Johnny's question, any of those three is that that viable. The one, um, in terms of the warm seat, I'll tell you who has the best chance of getting of really making a change on that, is if Clay Helton's team can either beat or be really competitive against Alabama in the opener. They get out to a 7-1 and one start. A lot of the moves off the field people are encouraged by. I think he would have a chance to for people to go, you know what, we're not really sure what's going to happen here with USC. It would cost them a fortune to make a coaching change. That's why it wasn't made six months ago. I think that's one that probably should be should be considered there. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a real quick example I th- just thought of, and then we can move on to the next question. If I think Will Muschamp is squarely on the hot seat. He is another one with a big buyout, but... I don't know. I think South Carolina and anywhere in the SEC, frankly, they would find a place to, to for the money. Uh, if he were five and six going to the last game of the season and shocked Clemson, I think he would not only keep his job but get a big contract extension. I don't know if he get a big contract extension, but I think he probably would keep his job for that. Yep. Uh, next up, Michael Donlin. Um, we hear so much about the transfer portal, and I'm curious how it works. Is it just a database of names and coaches? Is it just a database of names and coaches just search by position or something for what they're looking for? Or is entering the portal more like an announcement where th- then things play out more like recruiting where players and coaches reach out to each other through connections? Can you explain what the portal actually is and how it works? Thanks, Michael in Lincoln, Nebraska. I had done a story on this early on where I had some coaches kind of walk me through the process. And when the names go in, they're going to go in, let's say, at 1 o'clock uh, at a at a given time, and w- the the challenges with it is you really don't know a lot of the circumstances why a name is in there. A lot of times, and I think when I, my story was done, Arizona State had fourteen guys in the portal, which seemed like a lot, but I'm not sure any of those guys were had been on there too deep. A lot of them were walk ons. One of the names that was that I had uh, mentioned in my story was a guy who was listed, I think, as a Virginia Tech specialist or kicker or punter, but he was never even on their team. And so I think that makes it more complicated when, you know, a lot of times now, a lot of people in the media also have access to passwords. So they'll check in and be like, okay, this guy who was a, who was once a four-star recruit but probably doesn't play there, he's in the portal. You know, that fan base will care. Um, because it's a name they recognize, but a lot of times those players don't have places to land um, because there aren't the scholarships. And you can say, well, I heard my school has 69 scholarships. That's way under the 85. That may be, but the key number is uh, how many did they sign for the 25 and the initials? And that number you don't have wiggle room on. So I think a lot of times people will see how many people are in the portal but they don't have landing spots uh, to get scholarships at other places. And so that's one of the challenges. And quite honestly, that's one of the issues that has come up uh, with, with the talk of a one-time transfer exemption is where is the scholarship 
relief that could create some landing spots for a lot of these guys who may go in there. Yeah, to another point though, he made there. You know, I think one of the one of the motivations for the transfer portal was to try to cut down on tampering. Uh, but I think you know when you see how quickly after Jamie Newman entered the portal, he ended up at his next school. Uh, there have been a couple other examples of that. Like clearly, conversations were taking place before they officially entered the portal. If the school um, is doing it right, though, they're not talking to the kid. They're talking to the high school coach, right, or somebody else close to him. That's technically not tampering. So I do think that in a lot of these cases, I mean, in the case of this week of Washington picking up a quarterback, uh, you know, one of the top uh, players in FCS from Sacramento State, according to our, our, our Washington writer, Christian Cable, is literally like he put his name in the portal and four days later he had an offer from Washington. You know, that might have been more organic, but a lot of times this stuff was starting to be brokered before uh, he actually put his name in. It was a big, big week last week around USC and Reggie Bush, Bruce, and our favorite USC fan listener, David Eisen, asks us. This is, a, I think, a fun one. Um, with the end of his ridiculous disassociation from USC, it brings to mind the following question. Which players over the past 20 years do you think would have taken the most advantage of the new name image likeness rules? Reggie Bush, Tim Tebow, Johnny Manziel, somebody else? So I, uh, we both had, had uh, written about this, and I did that Reggie Bush story, and you did something uh, with also talking to Navigate Research, who are experts in this field. And the question I had asked about Reggie Bush was, what would he have made? And it wasn't like, what would he make now? It was, there was both basically both examples. What would he have made in 2005, which was before social media, in terms of at least it was before Twitter. Reggie Bush has 3 million followers now, he wouldn't have had any back then, so that's less of a like a microphone or a, or a uh, or a soapbox for him. Still, they said he would have made two to three million dollars, and what was going in his favor wasn't just that he was a dynamic player, and as and USC was the preeminent powerhouse then. He was also in the second biggest media market in the country, and the USC factor in Los Angeles was a big deal because how they determined that number was from a couple of different uh, buckets in this in terms of it would be the shoe deal, apparel deal, uh, the beverage deal, supplement side as well. But then also it could be local furniture stores, that kind of thing. And then the thing that's the wild card in this, as much as anything, would be if he was going to do appearances. And the and the example was if some some donor decided he want to have Reggie Bush come to his kid's birthday party to be like the talk of the block, he could pay him perhaps 50 grand or a hundred grand. And you do 10 of those, it's a half a million or it's a million dollars. That money adds up a lot. So, you know, the Reggie Bush part we know, cause we knew it was significantly more than, than Trevor Lawrence, they said, or significantly more than Joe Burrow. Um, I don't know about Tim Tebow or Johnny Manziel, those names didn't come up. What do you think? Oh, I think both of them would have done very, very well. I mean, Tebow was a phenomenon, and he, and most importantly, he was, you know, he was a known name for three years, maybe longer. I mean, from the time he got there. So, um, and he and his, um, and it wasn't just Gators fans. You know, he had a a, a, a national following. So, I mean. Now, Tim Tebow, being the humanitarian that he is, might have donated a lot of that money to charity, but I do think he could have gotten some of those figures you're talking about. 
I think Johnny Manziel was such a transcendent player who, who, I mean, that he came to define Texas A&M football during that period, and frankly, still, still sort of does for a lot of people. Um, but, but let's be, let's be, um, you know, let, let's make sure and make people realize that it's very few people that we're talking about over the last twenty years that are that, that have that kind of magnetic effect. I mean, I think most college stars are still not that well known outside of diehard college football fans. It's very few that become full-on celebrities. I think a more recent one you could point to is Tua uh, because his big breakthrough was, you know, at the end of his freshman year. So that would have given him two full years. But didn't they, to, so didn't they, didn't you ask about Tua and how much they thought he would have made? Um, Tua was, yeah, I think he was in, you know, the, the high hundreds of thousands but that was per year. So over the course of two years, he could have gotten into the seven figures, I think. You know, he, he would have been in a better position than Joe Burrow, who really only, you know, became a sensation in the span of a few months. I don't think he would have been um, cashing in before September of his senior season. One of the things that they said at the Navigate Research uh, CEO had pointed out was in the case of Reggie Bush, it was also apparel and some of these companies were looking at long, you know, a long term, hey, we could we could already get kind of a head start on this. And uh, the thing that it's interesting because he's a running back and how running backs are valued. But I think that the style of play was something that attracted people. But I think when you look at some of the other people and certainly Tebow or Johnny Manziel, I think there's probably a lot more uncertainty about what kind of NFL players they were going to be. Um, now it didn't turn out to Reggie Bush didn't have a Hall of Fame career. I mean, he had a good career, but it wasn't that. Whereas the other guys didn't end up staying. Now, obviously, Tim Tebow still has a lot of star power to him and still has a lot of influence. So I think that also makes it, uh, you know, an interesting thing. Whereas in the case of Trevor Lawrence, as you said in your story, um, he wasn't in the seven figures, but he's a guy I think probably of those quarterbacks that are mentioned. NFL and and marketing people, I think, would probably see him as more of a sure thing of a long term play than certainly Johnny or Tim Tebow. That's right. That that would be some NFL agents would get involved there, thinking if we can get this guy some deals in college, hopefully he signs with us, you know, and stays with us when he becomes a pro and makes tens of millions of dollars over the course of his career. And but but in football, there's so few guys that you can feel good about that. I mean, Tebow and Manziel did end up being first round picks. Obviously, it didn't work out. But there's so few guys that that that. I mean, Jadavion Clowney was one of those guys, but I don't think a defensive player from South Carolina would have would, would have gotten that kind of profile, same profile as a as a star quarterback. I think they almost all would have been star quarterbacks. Obviously, Reggie being an exception. Um. James Birdsong, hey Bruce and Stu, transfer portal. Has another transfer portal question, but he's saying that he's looking for guys who uh, have have transferred this offseason who aren't quarterbacks that might be um, impact players. He mentions obviously Jabril Cox, LSU, Ohio State getting Trey Sermon, the Oklahoma running back. So why don't you just pick one of these off this list he gives us? I'm going to go with Quincy uh, Roche. From he was the defensive end Miami got from Temple. He was a dominant player in the AAC. He's going to be opposite Greg Russo, and they should have a nasty pass rush. I mean, he was a big, big time player before that. There's some other good players on there now. Some of these guys, uh, 
that that uh, James mentions, like Lorenzo Lingard, super fast kid who was at Miami, was a five star guy who is now eligible at Florida. He might be, you know, he might be an impact guy there. We don't know. Isaiah Pryor certainly played, uh, played some, played and had a, you know, was a solid player for Ohio State. He's now at Notre Dame, but like Quincy Roche was a dominant edge rusher. And again, the combination of him and Rousseau, who exploded as a as a redshirt freshman last year, that's a lot of that's a lot of heat for for Manny Diaz to have coming off the edge. And I think those are that was the name that really kind of stood out to me of, among all those other ones there. Yeah, because most times, so that's the difference between a guy who is transferring up. I mean, most of these guys tr- tr- transferred because they weren't they weren't in star roles at their former school. And so, you know, maybe Isaiah Pryor turns into a stud safety for Notre Dame, but he wasn't necessarily got, he hadn't gotten to that point yet at Ohio state, but um, Quincy Roach was the AAC player of the year. Uh, It would be surprising if he doesn't have a big impact for Miami. So between that and De'Ara King, I guess you're telling us that the U is back, right? Uh, I'm not saying that. I think they'll probably be good, but I don't, I don't think they're going to be a top 10 team. And, I will say this again. The U is back when there's a parade in Miami. That's when they can say they're back. All right. We got some, we had some other good ones, but, but we ran out of time. So we'll try to load up on those mailbag questions next week. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 